Well, today we have a topical study, and this study is on the Holy Spirit. And it's a two-part study. Part one will be this morning, and Lord willing, part two will be this evening. It's not exhaustive, so there may be questions about the Holy Spirit that I won't address, uh, issues that I won't be able to get to. It's a broad, and we could spend weeks preaching on the Holy Spirit. But we can certainly, if you have questions, you can, we can talk afterwards, and I'd be glad to answer any questions if I can. Or you can ask Pastor John. He, he might be a better source in some cases. Uh, in any case, uh, for this study, I've used a couple of books that I w- would highly recommend. Uh, the first one is The Holy Spirit, by Charles Spurgeon, and I think this is a compilation of sermons that he did on the Holy Spirit, and it happened to deal with the subject matters that I was uh, uh, addressing in, in my messages, and so I wanted to read him, and it was well worth the purchase. It's, a, it's on Amazon. You can get it, The Holy Spirit by Spurgeon. It's a bridge, so it's very easy reading, so I could highly recommend that. And then the other book is fairly new, and it's by... As you know, John Ruther, the uh, pastor in New Jersey, and he's got the book called The Gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's a uh, well-researched, well-documented, full of scripture, well-organized, and he hits the nail on the head. It's the Holy Spirit from a Reformed Baptist perspective. And, uh, And I think from just a biblical perspective, let's be Let's be frank about this. So I highly recommend this book. It may not be necessarily for devotional purposes, but it's great for instructional purposes in helping us to better understand the work and person of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit in our day, especially in certain circles, Pentecostal, charismatic churches, right? And sadly, the Holy Spirit can be overemphasized even at the expense of the Father and the Son and even the Gospel itself. There's so much excitement about the the gifts and the manifestations of the Spirit that the more central things of the Gospel and, and and the person and work of Christ, and they become almost secondary. Well, as an overreaction, Sometimes those in even reform circles can omit the Holy Spirit because they don't want to fall into that trap. And so they just kind of ignore them, both in church life, although I don't, I'm not saying that's happening here. In fact, Pastor John's telling me you guys are moving into a study on the Holy Spirit based on the book of John, John chapter 16. And so I'm not saying that, but in our personal lives, we can certainly not want to talk about the Holy Spirit so people don't think we're in these Pentecostal circles or, tra- or, or errors. Right. Well, we certainly don't want to do that. Um, and we don't want to do that because Scripture puts a major emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to be unbiblical, do we? And so the Holy Spirit, for instance, in the New Testament alone is mentioned 250 times. So he's not a minor character in the scriptures. He's a major character. He's part of the Godhead. He's, 
as we'll show, he's one with God the Father and God the Son. So whatever I say about the Holy Spirit this day, it'll probably be really unworthy of what he's worth and the glory that is due him. Well, the outline for this morning's message is we're going to look at the nature or the person of the Holy Spirit. First, that the Holy Spirit is God, the deity of the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, it's a simple outline, is the person of the Holy Spirit, who he is. And uh, then finally, we'll have some applications, Lord willing. But before we begin, let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all our praise. You are worthy of our worship, both you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we fall short miserably at times, and we are, have remaining sin that we're still battling, and how we need your Spirit's help. And even in this, and especially in this hour, we pray, O oh Lord, that you might undertake for us, that you might fill us with your spirit in a special measure. Pray that we might be able to preach and hear your word in a manner that would be worthy of Christ. Pray that you might help us to grow in our understanding of the third person of the Trinity. Pray that you might help us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray that you might be glorified in all that's spoken. Pray that you might help us to be better Christians and rely upon the Spirit as well as the Father and the Son. We pray, O Lord, for your help here. Be with us. Leave us not to ourselves, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, the first, uh, <clears throat> the first part of the sermon here, First major point is the Holy Spirit is God or the deity of the Holy Spirit. This is a critical part of knowing the, the Holy Spirit because Satan through the cults would love to have us be uh, diverted from the idea that, G, that the Spirit is God. This is part of their goal because they're, I believe, you know, active players in Satan's arsenal of weapons. And so he's trying to undermine the idea that the Holy Spirit is God and that Jesus Christ is God. Uh, and th notice that this is common throughout the cults. Well, hopefully what the arguments, and I'll have four of them, and there may be more. This is, again, a broad subject. I may not hit on everything that could be said about the Spirit is God, but... Hopefully through these you'll have the idea that the Spirit is God confirmed in your own heart and conscience. First of all, have you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians in chapter 3. The first argument here is that the Spirit is actually called God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 17, it says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And if you look in the original, it's stated exactly the way it's translated here. 
All words are in the original. The Lord, the definite article is there. The Lord is, and the word is is in there. The, the definite article, the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So the Lord is equated here with the Spirit. He's called the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. John 4.24 says this, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in Spirit and in truth. So Pastor John and I have been talking about this verse since I've been here yesterday. And we all agree, we both agree, that the emphasis of this verse, John 4, 24, is that, uh, we're, that we're, to worship the, we're to worship God in spirit and in truth because God is spirit. His nature is spiritual. It's, he doesn't have, it's like the catechism. God is spirit and does not have a body like men. So that's the idea is that we are worshiping in spirit. But... A side note on this is that who is the Spirit? Who is God's Spirit? Does he, has, does he have a name? Yeah, he's got the Holy Spirit is his name. So the Holy Spirit and God are one. And we're going to show this further on in our study today. And then turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And many of you are familiar with this uh, account. Uh, what's happened here is this is the first uh, church at Jerusalem. And many of the saints in Jerusalem are poor. And the reason some have speculated or maybe some have researched this out, some of the reason that they're, reasons that they're poor is because their fellow Jews were ostracizing them because they recognized that Jesus is the Messiah, and they've decided to determine to follow him. They've been, they've been converted, and the Jews didn't like that. And so, of course, you know, the Jews were some of the major enemies of the gospel in the early days, and some in Jerusalem were ostracized, so they couldn't get jobs. And so, as a result, they needed help, and whatever the cause or whatever the reason, there were many poor in Jerusalem. And Paul, throughout his ministry, was encouraging the churches to help out, collect, making collections for the poor in Jerusalem. Well, at this point in time, what was happening is some of those that had possessions, had land, for instance, like this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, some of these people would sell the land, would gather the money for the land, and would lay it at the apostles' feet. And the assumption here is that the money they got for the land, they would take all of that money and put it there for the giving of these poor saints. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they're a married couple, and they do this very thing. So in verse 1, it says, A certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept 
back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So it's very clear what's going on here is they sell this piece of land and they get the money and they put some of it in their pocket. And then they lay it out before the apostles as if it was the entire sum of money for the land. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own? Your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, if you pause there, you you say, no, wait a minute. I thought he just said that he lied to the Holy Spirit. Didn't he? In verse 3, you have not lied. It says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse 4, the very next verse, he says, you have not lied to men, but God. So you could see what's going on is that they're equating the Holy Spirit with God. He understands the Spirit is God. And of course, we know what happens after that. He dies immediately. He heard these words, Ananias, in verse 5, fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And then later on, Sapphira comes by and, and they same account and she lies to them, telling them, oh yeah, this is the price of the land. And she dies as well. And they carried her out. Well, you get the idea. The Spirit and God are equated in Scripture. Now notice in this whole thing with Ananias as an aside, notice he, he lied to the Spirit He lied to God, but he didn't say a word. He conceived this deed in his heart. And God held him accountable. It's not that he uh, said certain things. It's that he just didn't say anything. He just laid the stuff before the price of the land. This is it. This is the money. And... He lied to the Holy Spirit. So God checks our heart. The heart is what's important. It's not the externals. Those are important too, but it's not really the externals. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Well, the second piece of evidence that the Spirit of God is God is that the Spirit does what only God can do and the Spirit has attribute that only, attributes that only God has. So what do I mean that the Spirit does what only God can do? Well, what is God? He's our creator. So turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. 
Now, why does he use our? Well, it's the, the reason is because it's a plural. It's because there's more than one person in the Godhead. And so the assumption that most people say is, well, he's speaking of Christ here. I mean, it's God and Christ, and this proves that Christ is the creator. But it's interesting that I believe that's true, but Christ isn't mentioned in this passage specifically. But the Spirit is. Look at verse 1 of Genesis 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So the Spirit is there at creation in verse 2 of the creation account. So when it says, let us make God man in, in our image, the assumption here is that the Spirit is part of this. The Spirit is the creator. Well, there's other verses that attest to the Spirit's creation, uh, create, uh, creating ability. In Psalm 104, it says, You do send forth your Spirit, and they are created. Psalm 104.30. And he's talking in the context of all living things. Everything that moves. You send forth your spirit, and they are all created. The spirit creates. Can you create? Of course not. We can't create anything. We can, we can make things out of existing things, but the testimony of scripture is that God makes something out of nothing. That's the nature of creation. That which does not exist, he speaks it into existence. And he doesn't use pre-existing things to do it. So this idea that God is just guiding evolution is hogwash. He didn't, he didn't use pre-existing material. He speaks into existence that which does not exist, the Bible says. And the same with the Holy Spirit. He creates man out of nothing. The dust of the earth. And then, pew, there's man. Well, Job 33, Job says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So this is Job. That's his testimony. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Now how can I believe that the Spirit made me when I don't see him, I can't touch him, I can't hear him, can't feel him? Uh, now of course, we, the answer of course is because God's Word says, and if God's Word says it, we need to believe it. But still the question might linger in your mind. You know, you know I'd, I'd never seen the Spirit, and I don't know what he's like. I've never heard him. I, I don't feel him. How do I know that he's there? Well, the reason we, we know that he's there, it's kind of like a man who makes intricately designed Adirondack furniture. Okay? Now, we don't, we don't know this guy, but you know, there's, I'm just say there's a man who makes it. And he leaves a chair out in the middle of the woods, and you're walking through the woods, and, well, there's a chair. And you look at it, and you go, wow, 
This Adirondack chair is amazing. Look at the intricate design of this thing. Uh, you know, the, they've got single uh, pieces of branch cutting up from the seat, and the seat has a nice uh, indentation in the bottom of it, and uh, there's, you know, the backing is at the top and at the bottom of the back, and it's just so comfortable to sit in. And you say, wow, this is, I know a guy, I know, I know exactly uh, who made that. This thing has been designed by a very uh, skillful uh, artist. <laughs> he, he's, he makes Adirondack furniture. And you certainly wouldn't can come to the conclusion that this chair just took a few billion years to construct this thing. And if you just left it by itself, you know, this, this, the woods and the branches in the woods, that we would come out to be a, an Adirondack chair. You wouldn't say that, would you? You'd say, oh, that's ludicrous. Of course you can't get an Adirondack chair all happening all by itself, right? Well, then the same guy who's walking through the woods after he stumbles on the chair, he sees a man standing there off in the distance. And he starts walking closer to that guy, and he's just out there in the middle. And Now, in terms of his origins, how would he think? Well, in our day, you'd say, oh, well, yeah, evolution. Yeah, I mean, he's been there for, you know, it just took a few billion years, but he, there he is, right? I mean, that's what's, in our day, that's the conclusion that's made. Now, if you think about it, when you compare that man to the Adirondack chair, what about his ear and the intricacy of the hearing, the hearing ear and the eye and the intricacy and the complexity of the seeing eye and how it's connected to the brain and the circulatory system and the respiratory system and, and it all functions just right so that man can live many, many years and even decades. All in intricately designed. Can we really say, if, yeah, if we just, you know, wait for a few billion years, you know, that sludge in the, in the pond that he's standing next to, that'll eventually become him. You'd say that is absolutely ridiculous. But yet, this is what is embraced by the vast majority of, of your fellow countrymen. Why? Because the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. That's why. They need divine intervention in their lives and in their mind. They need to be awakened spiritually. They need to be saved. They need to see, and we'll deal with this tonight. But in both cases, we didn't see the guy who made the Adirondack chair. We didn't feel him. We didn't hear him. We didn't smell him. But we know he existed and must have made that chair, whoever he is. And we believe that. And the same with the guy standing next to the pond. We didn't see him, whoever made that guy. And we didn't hear him. And we didn't smell him. But we know that the Spirit made him because God's Word tells us. And so this is what we have to deal with as human beings on the existence of the Holy Spirit, is that if the Bible says the Spirit made him, and we have no earthly explanation, 
There has to be a spiritual realm around. This, this is one of the great evidences and proof texts of the spiritual realm. That it does exist. And we'll, we'll get to this again, as I mentioned, tonight a little further. Well, <clears throat> it is the Spirit who gives life. John 6.63. And, and I believe that is an uh, emphasis on the spiritual aspect of the, of the Spirit's work. The Spirit gives life, but I believe it includes the physical aspect as, as well. Just as it does for Jesus Christ. Well, the Spirit also has attributes that only God has. And attributes are his characteristics for you children. <clears throat> the attributes of God are, what, what is he like? What is his character like? What are his uh, characteristics? And we find that he has characteristics that only he has, God. And the Spirit has those same characteristics. If he does, then we know he's God. You see where I'm going with this? So we know that God is eternal, right? The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. That's what it says. God is eternal. He has no beginning of days nor end of life. He never was. He, w- he always was, and he will always be. And it's the same for Jesus Christ. His days are from eternity, it says in Micah 2, 5, 2. And what does it say? The angel told Mary, and he shall reign forever and ever. He will reign over the house of Israel forever. That's what it says. Now, with the Spirit, in Hebrews 9, and we'll look at this text in more detail tonight, but in Hebrews 9, it talks about the eternal Spirit. So the Spirit is eternal, Hebrews 9, verse 14. So if the Spirit is eternal, and only God is we're not eternal, we have beginning of days. We may live forever and ever with Christ and God in eternity, but we're not, we don't, our days are begun at the point of our birth. <laughs> That's when we started to exist. Now, God had that all planned, but we're not eternal. But God is, and the Spirit is. He's eternal. Secondly, the Spirit is truth. This is another characteristic of the Spirit. Again, God the Father is true. Let God be true, and every man a liar, is what it says. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? No man comes to the Father except by him. In the same way, 1 John 5, 7. You can turn there if you want. 1 John 5, 7. Just so you can see it with your own eyes. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. It can't be any plainer. And this, like the other verse, is exactly the way the Greek original is ordered. 
the Spirit is the truth. We're not truth, and we might have a lot of truth in us, thanks be to God. But it's marred because of our sin. So the implication is that the Spirit has no sin to mar his understanding. The Spirit is the truth. There's no sin in him. Only God is truth. And so God is sinless, so the Spirit is sinless. So that's another argument. But then, the Spirit is omnipresent. Now that's a big word that means God is everywhere. You can't get away from God. He's there no matter where you go. Where can I go from thy presence? Right? Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In verse, this is of course the preaching at Pentecost. And Peter, after being accused of being drunk, he goes, no, we're not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day, I believe it says. Uh, We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 16, he says, but what is this that was spoken of? But this What you see, they're filled with the Spirit and they're speaking in foreign languages, speaking in tongues, which is the clear explanation for what tongues are. They were speaking in foreign languages. So that all those who were gathered that day at Pentecost, who spoke different languages, could understand what the apostles were saying. In their own language, it says. They were speaking in tongues. It was audible, it was understandable. In any case, Peter is saying, this what you hear and see is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel in verse 17, and it shall be in the last days, God says that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So he's saying that his spirit is going to be deposited above into men all over the earth. Now just think about that for a minute. How in the world could the spirit be in different men all over the earth? Well, the only way that's possible is if he's omnipresent. He's not confined to one place. He's spirit. The spirit is the Holy Spirit. God's spirit is not confined because he doesn't have a body like us. See, wherever we are, we we can only be present and see what's around us. We don't know what's going on in that parking lot right now. For all we know, there could be some crook breaking into somebody's car. We wouldn't know it. Right? Because we're confined to what we can see. That we are... um, we are not omnipresent. We are just can see what's around us. But the Spirit is not like that. He can be everywhere and see everything. In that verse I had quoted earlier, Psalm 139.7, Where shall I go from thy Spirit? And where shall I flee from your presence? Now the psalmist is speaking to God the Father. Where shall I flee from your presence? But 
he starts the verse, where shall I go from your spirit? So again, God the Father and God the Spirit are presented as one. So God the Spirit, or God's Spirit, I mean, that's what his Spirit is, is the Holy Spirit. His Spirit is everywhere. God is everywhere. The Spirit has the same attributes as God the Father. They are one. Both are God. You see the thinking here? Also, the Spirit is omniscient. And again, for you kids, omniscient means he knows everything. That's what it means. The Holy Spirit knows everything. Just like God the Father and just like God the Son. If you turn to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, this is very interesting. If you notice Revelation chapter 2, the entire chapter is in red. If you have Bibles that highlight the words of Christ in red, it means that Christ is speaking these things to John who is writing them down. Okay, and this is confirmed in verse 18. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance. So this explicitly tells us that Jesus Christ is speaking these words to John. He's writing them down. The Son of God says, is what it says. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And his feet are like burnished bronze. So we all accept that. After all, the words are in red. It must be true. <laughs> That's not, I'm kidding around. But look at verse 29. At the end... This is what Jesus says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus Christ is speaking to the churches. Well, he is. But it says that the Spirit is speaking to the churches. That's right. It's the Spirit of Christ speaking to the churches. The Spirit of God is speaking to the churches. So they're equated. And not only does it say this in verse 29 of chapter 2, but in verse 7, it says the same thing. In chapter 2, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter, uh, verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. You can see the the writer is emphasizing this. The Spirit is speaking to the churches. Now the question, of course, is how in the world does the Spirit know what's going on in all them churches? <laughs> right? If you think about that, how does he know what's going on in Thyatira and Ephesus and Philadelphia and, and Pergamum and, and all the rest? How does he know it? Well, it's because he's omnipresent. He knows exactly what's going on, just like Jesus Christ does, because Christ's Spirit is there, which is the Holy Spirit. 
He knows exactly what's going on in Ephesus that they lost their first love. And not only does he know what's going on, but he knows the hearts of the people. So it's not just the externals, you know, where somebody could have, you know, ratted on the church at Ephesus. You know, I think they've lost their first love. No, that's not what happened. It's not that somebody ratted to God and filled him in on what was going on. No, he knows because he's omniscient and omnipresent. The spirit is the spirit of wisdom and truth. So of course he knows what's going on. He knows all things. He's omniscient. And then finally, the spirit is omnipotent. In terms of the attributes of God, he's omnipotent, all-powerful. That's what omnipotent means. Our Lord God, the omnipotent reigns. That's what it says about God the Father. He's all-powerful. God is so powerful, he can do anything. He can create the world. So can the Spirit. He can make man. So can the Spirit. The Spirit is all-powerful. He can speak the word. And there it is. It exists. The Spirit of God has made me. But also, explicitly we're told that the Spirit is a spirit of power. Acts 1.8, you don't have to turn there, and you shall receive power. The apostles are told this. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Romans 15 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you'd say blasphemy if I were to say, if somebody were to say, by the power of Bob Gaza. Oh, no. You see, I'm not, I'm not all powerful. Neither are any of you folks. You're not all powerful. You can't accomplish what the only God can do. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit with power, we will be powerful in that sense. Our, our sin will mitigate against it, but whatever power the Holy Spirit will give us, we'll have that power. And that's an encouraging thing, isn't it? That we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and abound in hope and abound in peace. And abound in joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, we're told. We need to be joyful people. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will. Well, the third piece of evidence that the Spirit of God is that the Holy Spirit is presented as being one with the Father and the Son. That he's one with the Father and the Son thus telling us that he's God. So we've kind of hinted at this already, but there's specific verses that join the three together. And one of them, of course, is the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now if he said, in the name of the Father and the Son and Bob God... That's blasphemy. 
No, because only one deserves to be put with God the Father and God the Son, and that's God the Holy Spirit. Right? They're one. They're working together, and we'll get to that. The Spirit is both the... And then secondly, the Spirit is both the Spirit of the Father and Son. And again, we've kind of hinted at this already, but uh, turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And here Peter describes the Old Testament prophets and how it was that they received the message that they were going to write down. There's specific chapters in uh, Jeremiah in which it actually describes the, the writing of Scripture as it's dictated by to Jeremiah, and then he writes it down. But here we have an explanation in brief In verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. Now that's kind of a complicated verse, but you see what it's doing, what he's doing here is that the Prophets were seeking to know the person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. So this is the idea that's plainly expressed in 2 Peter chapter 1, is that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's what it says, how the scriptures are written. Men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And this is what we have. But notice what it says. The time the Spirit of Christ that was in them. I thought he's the Spirit of the Father. I thought he's God's Spirit. Here it says the Spirit of Christ was in them. Is that a different spirit? No, there's only one Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So he's called the Spirit. And then a verse that I... I quoted earlier, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So he's the Spirit of Christ, and he's the Spirit of God. He's the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of both. How could he be Spirit of both? Because he's one with the Father and the Son. It's the only way you could think of that. He's one with with the Father and the Son. Now note also that Paul's desire for the Corinthians includes communion with all three persons of the the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So again, he's putting them all together. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, that's God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Well, the fourth piece of evidence, and this is, I would say, a minor argument, but I'm going to present it anyway. The fourth piece of evidence is that the Holy Spirit is God, that the Holy Spirit is God is because the idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit 
mentioned in chapter 12, verse 31, which has no forgiveness, if you recall the verse. How can the Holy Spirit be blasphemed if he's not God? In nearly every passage that the word blasphemy is used in the Bible, virtually every one is an attack to, a def to defame God. And so how could you blasphemy the Holy Spirit unless he's God? Well, you get the idea. In any case, just some side applications here before we move on to the next major point, which will be much briefer, is that the biblical evidence that the Spirit of God is overwhelming, that the Spirit is God is overwhelming. This flies into the, in the face of the teaching of many cults, including the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. They deny that the Spirit is God, as many cults do, as I mentioned earlier, and is, <clears throat> and is one with the Father and and the Son and the Trinity. Excuse me. <clears throat> Listen to what it says from the Mormons. This is from the Institute of Religious Research. This is what the Normans, Mormons would say, that the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit is a spirit child. <clears throat> In other words, he's created by God. He's sort of birthed by God into this, into existence. He's a spirit child who does not have a body of flesh and bones as do the Heavenly Father and Jesus. You know, no, wait a minute. Are you telling me that the Heavenly Father, the Father, God, our God, God our Father, has flesh and bones? That's what they believe. The Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit is not really God. Of course, they don't believe that. That's what it says. Though in a secondary sense, he is a God. Oh, we've heard this argument before from the Jehovah's Witness. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and they translated, a God. But the problem is, there's only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one God, one Father of us all. It says in Ephesians 4. There's only one God and one Father of us overall. So he can't be a God that happens to be joined in what they call the Godhead. They, they believe in a Godhead, but they don't believe that they're all one as God. They believe they're Father, Son, and Spirit, but they're separate. They're not they're not all God. Only God the Father is God, and God the Fa Son and God the Spirit are just created beings. In any case, the 1689 Confession says this in chapter 2, The doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. So this is one of the main reasons the benefits of understanding properly that the Trinity is indeed Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God, all one. Three, three persons in one. Now the deity of the Spirit ensures that there is perfect unity in all he does with the Father and the Son. 
It ensures that all have one design, one purpose, and one approach. And this will come into play tonight as we look at the work of the Holy Spirit. In all they do, they have one design, one purpose, one approach. So they're not fighting against one another. It's not that the Father has one idea and the Son has one, another idea and the Spirit's got his third idea. Uh, <clears throat> that's, that's farthest from the truth. They're all one in mind and purpose, one approach, one purpose, one design. Well, the second major part of our message this morning is that the Holy Spirit is a, per, is a uh, person. So I'm going to be quoting, especially tonight, from Charles Spurgeon. And I just wanted to quote from him here at this point, that the Holy Spirit is a person. So this is what Spurgeon says. He says, But when I come to deal with the Holy Spirit, his operations are so mysterious, his doings are so secret, his acts are so removed from everything that is of sense and of the body that I cannot so easily grasp the idea of his being a person. But a person he is. God the Holy Spirit is not an influence, an emanation, a stream of something flowing from the Father, but he is much an actual person as either God the Son or God the Father. So Spurgeon says it very plainly, unmistakably supports the idea that the Spirit is a person. Now for, turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says in verse 10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the, in the NAS, has thoughts of man? But I think it might be better, better to keep it general, which is the translation in like the King James, the New King James, uh, knows the things of a man, except the spirit of the man, which is in him, even so, the things or thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Right? So here, we can see that the Spirit is searching God, his own self. Now, we as humans are made up of body and spirit, or soul. Some, most would agree that the Spirit and soul, they're kind of referring to the same thing. James says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So what is he doing here? He's saying that the person, us, are made up of spirit and body. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So we have a spirit which is part of what we are as human beings, right? Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you may want to put your finger in 1 Corinthians 2 because we're, <clears throat> we're going to go back to that verse. But in 2 
And, and I found this in my studies, and I was so excited to see this, because it just hit me as I was reading this verse at one point during my preparations. In <clears throat> verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 5, where he's talking about us having our earthly tent. Now, it may be obvious for some of you folks that have are familiar with this passage or whatever, but in verse 8, it says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. <clears throat> now, what does it mean, we? The way he phrases it is that we is, are, are the spirit. And we are in the body, but rather be would rather be out of the body and with the Lord. So he's saying that the spirit is we. He's calling we the spirit. So it struck me, we are spirit. So the spirit within us is not an influence. It's not just a, uh, an emanation, as Spurgeon puts it. It's not just a stream of something. It's us. Right? Well, God is spirit. God's spirit is God. And his spirit alone knows his inner self, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. My spirit is me, and my spirit alone knows my inner self, just like it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Who, who among men knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man? which is in him. Even so, the things of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So just like our spirit is part of us, now we have a body, so our spirit goes into a body, which God doesn't have a body, but the spirit, our spirit knows us just like God's spirit knows God. So they're one. Just like our, when we're in this body, our spirit and our body are one. And they're both us. So this body here, that's Bob Gaza's right there. That hand. You see that hand? It's Bob Gaza's. <laughs> but my spirit is in me as well. And when my spirit leaves this body, I'll still exist. It'll be me, the spirit. My spirit is not an influence, an active force of energy, an attribute. It's me. God's spirit is not an influence, an active force, energy, or an attribute. It's him. But we also know he's a person because the Holy Spirit has the characteristics of a person. So now we're shifting focus here. The second point that the Holy Spirit is a person is that the Holy Spirit has the characteristics of a person. In 1 Corinthians 2, 11, B, it says, Even so, the things of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit has knowledge. He knows things. And we've already seen that. He knows what's going on in those seven churches. So he has knowledge, Right? Well, a thing doesn't have knowledge. A person has knowledge. 
So if he knows what's going on in the seven churches, and he knows what's going on in God himself, God the Father, he's a person. But then as we saw in Acts chapter 5 in Ananias and Sapphira, right? He can be lied to. You can't lie to a thing, but you can lie to a person. So the Holy Spirit is a person. And furthermore, he can be grieved. Ephesians 4 and verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Notice he's called the Holy Spirit of God in that verse. Interesting. Listen to Spurgeon on this one. Now this is sort of an aside and how we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And, and I had to read this because as I was reading it, I kind of sunk in my chair. and I was sinking like, you know. But Spurgeon has a way of getting to the, to the heart, right? Well, listen to what Spurgeon says. How can we grieve the Spirit? I am now, mark you, speaking of those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is in your hearts, and it is easy to indeed to grieve him. Sin is as easy as it is wicked. Interesting. You may grieve him by impure thoughts. He cannot bear sin. If you indulge in lewd expressions, or even if you allow your imagination to dwell on any impure act, if your heart is covetous, that means greedy, uh, envious of others, of what they have, you you want these things, if you set your heart upon anything that is evil, the Spirit of God will be grieved. I hear him speaking. I love this man. I want to have his heart, and yet he is entertaining these filthy lusts. His thoughts, instead of running after me, after Christ, after the Father, are running after the temptations that are in the world through lust. And then his spirit is grieved. We grieve him still more if we indulge in outward acts of sin. Spurgeon. In any case, he's a person if he can be grieved, right? He can't grieve a thing, but if he's a person, he can be grieved, and the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Acts 5, he can be put to the test. And this is what uh, Peter tells Ananias' wife, Sapphira. He says, why have you put the Holy Spirit to the test, God to the test? And you can't put a thing to the test. You can't put an emanation or a force to the test, but you can put a person to the test. Well, as an application on the official website of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they explicitly state that the Holy Spirit is not a person. It's an active force, energy, they say. Yes, the cults will mitigate, militate against and deny the biblical view of the Holy Spirit as a person, one with God, discrediting and attacking God himself. This is a battle between Satan and God. Satan will do everything he can to defame God, to lower him, to confuse people about who he is, to confuse people about who the Spirit is, 
and he'll do it all to the destruction of his people. They want his people not to be uh, trusting in the triune God that's revealed into the, in the Bible, but in some false God, which is idolatry. Keep that in mind. People say, oh, what does it matter how we, what we believe is all, you know, as long as we believe in God up there somewhere. Uh, be careful of that because you could be slipping right into idolatry by believing false things about God, his spirit, and his son. And that's dangerous business. Well, <clears throat> the other example is that <clears throat> the Holy Spirit makes pastors. So turn to Acts chapter 20 real quick. Acts chapter 20. We're kind of coming to the end here this morning. But I, did wanna, I didn't want to overlook this particular uh, example of the Holy Spirit and here he's speaking to the elders at Ephesus, meeting with them at Miletus. <clears throat> and in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20, he says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. So you see, the Holy Spirit makes you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Well, the Holy Spirit is a person. He makes pastors. He makes pastors. The Mormons believe he's an impersonal force, the Spirit. God is not a distant father, but communes with his people. Well, some further applications now as we close this morning. First of all, God the Holy Spirit deserves the same honor, exaltation, and reverence as God the Father and God the Son. He's called God. He has the same attributes as God that only God has. He's eternal, omniscient, omnipresent. He does what only God can do. He creates he creates the world and man and he gives life. He's one with the Father and the Son. He's a person, the third person of the Trinity. He deserves all our praise. Now in the Bible, the focus is not so much the praise of the Spirit, but nevertheless, he deserves our honor and he deserves our glory that we would give to him. Secondly, in light of his being one with the Son, it is not a surprise that the goal of the Spirit's ministry is to glorify Jesus Christ. John 16, 14, which I guess Pastor John is addressing or has addressed or will address more. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So the Spirit has come not to glorify us in our gifts. Not to glorify us in our miracle working. Not to glorify us in our prophecies. Not to glorify us in our tongues and to make us feel good about ourselves because we got it. 
or so that we can brag that we've got the Spirit and you don't, which goes on a lot, sadly. And, and by the way, we have some dear brethren who are in the Pente- in Pentecostal circles and, and charismatic circles. and So I don't want to cast aspersions, but I am attacking this doctrine that some have embraced, sadly, and that is spreading rapidly in our day and has been for decades. But it uh, is very popular in our day, and I want to go after that because this would be, do great damage spiritually to those that embrace it and would give undue emphasis to the Holy Spirit at the expense of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and of God the Father. The Spirit's goal is not to entertain congregations or amaze them with miracles. That's not, this is what we've read about the Spirit. And this is, see, this is why I'm approaching things this way, is I'm trying to show not so much what the Spirit doesn't do, but what he does do. In the biblical evidence for what the Spirit does. Have we read anything today? All the verses that we've quoted and referenced? Has anything been said about getting the, get, getting the people moving? No! It's all about the Trinity. It's all about Christ. It's all about glorifying His, His Son, God the Father's Son. No, his goal is to glorify Christ and to work with him in the mission to save his people from their sins. And we're gonna, that's what we're going to deal with tonight. Now turn uh, on page 52 of Spurgeon's book. He says this. It is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. He does many things, but this is what he aims at in all of them. To glorify Christ. Brethren, what the Spirit does must be right for us to imitate. Therefore, let us endeavor to glorify Christ. To what higher end can we devote ourselves than to something to which God the Holy Spirit devotes himself? Let this be then your fervent prayer. Blessed Spirit, help me ever to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, how do we glorify Christ? In our public and private prayers, our praises and thanksgiving. As in heaven, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be honor, glory, and blessing. That's what they're doing in heaven. They're praising Jesus Christ and God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. In our obedience to his commandments, if you love me, you'll keep his commandments. We can glorify Christ through keeping his commandments. And when we break his commandments, we run to the cross of Jesus Christ. That glorifies him. We ought not be ashamed and say, well, what's the use? I might as well not be a Christian anymore. Failure, 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 failure. No, that's not our proper response. It's that we run to the Savior and go to his cross when we fail and get strength so that the next time we're confronted with that temptation, we'll be overcomers. And we won't stop. We were talking about this fella who was in our church for years and he was, uh, from, he was in prison and he was uh, in the mission, uh, a mission in Albany. And 
he came to our church and he was struggling with drug addiction. And uh, I'm not sure if he ever got away from that, uh, that addiction. But one thing he never got away from either was that he just kept going to the cross and he kept running to Christ. And, and only God knows what's going on spiritually throughout his life. But I do admire his determination that no matter how many sins he fell into, and this is not an excuse for sin. And, and it cast doubt in where he, where he is now, because he died just a few, uh, just last year. But one thing for sure is that I admire where he decided to go when he sinned, right to the cross. And he, and he kept saying, my hope is in Jesus Christ. Oh, may he forgive me for my sins and help me the next time. And drug addiction is a huge battle. I mean, there's physical addiction that you're dealing with. We must have compassion on those people. Uh, but in, in any case, the goal of the Spirit is to glorify Christ. And, and the other way we glorify Christ is by serving Christ in his church, which is his body, and bearing fruit for his kingdom. Well, <clears throat> many more things could be said, but let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for the clear message that it gives regarding your Son, regarding you, regarding the Holy Spirit. And we pray that we would have a better understanding of who your Spirit is and that we might be those who would rely on the Spirit and those who would glorify him and magnify his work and magnify his person, and that through him we might give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name.